Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. Good morning to you out there. My name is Bron Burton. And I'm Cade Mills. Hi, Cade. I am so excited to be in here, Bron. It's been about five months. Hey. It's been about five months. I I cannot believe. Yeah, towards the end of last year, I ended up getting pneumonia, which um, really doesn't do much for your radio voice or personality, to be honest, actually. No, it doesn't matter for anything, really. No. 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 So I've actually petrified this morning. Yeah. I feel like I've forgotten what it is that I do when I come in here. It's like riding a bike, Kane. Really? Yeah. Oh, maybe for Tim, <laughs> the season, the veteran. Well, welcome back. Speaking thank of which, you very yes, much. and That's thank right. you. I yes. missed that was perfect cue. Thank you, Tim, very much for Vital Bits. Today and yesterday, six hours of radio every weekend. Yes, nurse, nursing people through their weekend, whether they're hungover or not. Yeah. And Getting them ready for the day. And we're also grateful. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, uh, Andrew, for soulful bits. And thank you, Steph, for things to do today. Or bok choy, apparently, yes. as it's known. <laughs> A little chuckle at yes. that one. Yes. Um, so today's program, she says, reaching for her notes. Um, oh, so much going on. So... We talk about this a bit with the show. Sometimes things just sort of happen to fall into a theme. Um, they're not planned that way. This is this week is uh, one of those weeks. So it's all about restoration this week. It is, and it's it's something that's been, I guess, getting dialed up over the past few years. I think we're starting to, as um, one of our first guests sort of says, starting to play God. Mm. And with that comes a lot of complexity, a lot of issues, a lot, bit of polarisation with people sort of having different ideas around it. And I think they're the best conversations to have. Mm. Those ones that sort of, you know, get people quite passionate, but then there is science behind a lot of these decisions. So it's really good to have these conversations and get them out there. Yeah. Is it playing God or is it about actually just taking responsibility for our actions? Well, I guess that's part of um, the philosophy, isn't it? It's the way that you frame the question. Mm. So it'll be interesting to talk, particularly our first guest, should I mention Aaron Eggers from um, University of New South Wales. I have a feeling he's still doing his PhD and at the same time is a director of the Kelp Kelp Forest Alliance. So we're going to be talking to him about that idea of you know restoration is it playing god is it taking responsibility um how we frame it and then actually how we go about doing it yeah an incredibly ambitious target for 2040 which once would have felt very futuristic to say that (laughs) it's only 17 years away i know i sort of had that realization when i was writing the notes for the show and you know talking about a million hectares of kelp forest restoration yeah by 2040 200 this I'm reading from your notes 246,914 <laughs> MCGs I had to turn the- it into an MCG Bron everyone <laughs> understands that but you can't quite fathom that many MCGs can you It's an MCG or an Olympic swimming pool but yes. yeah No well that's right well, you can picture yourself there and think yeah 250,000 of these things yeah. that's what that's a global target so yeah looking forward to really uh, getting into the nuts and bolts of that so, yeah, and then we follow up with more restoration talks, don't we? We do. Uh, well, we're going to cross to um, Cara Hull for a dive report. Is she standing on a pier? I don't know this week. Most likely. I've had a text from Myra Kelly yeah. who's our, who gave us our dive report last week. Um, I'll save this for when we speak with Cara, but apparently incredible conditions yesterday for diving. 
Well, which yeah, makes sense. You should have been here yesterday. Thanks, Mara. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, nah, love to love to hear all about it. So thanks. Um, so we'll be talking to Kara. Um, but yes, then we're going to continue our conversation about uh, restoration. And you might remember over the last few years, it's had quite a lot of coverage to some great work being done by the Nature Conservancy for shellfish reef restoration. You've been involved with that too, Kate. Very different I, hat. I, I was from the very beginning. Actually, yeah. I was working at Fisheries when they started trialling some of that and I guess since then because of my involvement throughout time I've been able to dive and do a lot of the monitoring work on some of the reefs and to be honest I just come back from Gippsland last night I got in at 11 o'clock after doing some monitoring on the Gippsland lakes of some of the shellfish reefs that are there Mm. but I don't want to steal the limelight from the person that we're actually going to be interviewing so it's not about me Bron (laughs) (laughs) well (laughs) but um, I'm familiar with them you have lived experience so we'll have a a great um, part to play in this conversation with Scott Breshkin, who's from Nature Conservancy. So the stuff we've covered in the past has been about Port Phillip Bay and restoring shellfish reefs, which were there a long time ago, were there for a very, very long time, um, as, a, as a, an ecosystem really in its own right, the sort of the founding parts of an ecosystem, and through all sorts of different processes were removed um, and uh, anyway have been restored. And so this project's been so successful, the work's now expanding to the Gippsland Lakes and Scott's coming in to tell us all about that. Yeah, and it's actually all around the country. But mm. um, look, we've only got 10 minutes to talk to him, so we'll stick to what's happening in Victoria. Keep thir- it local. 13 sites? In the state? Yeah, in the country. Oh, uh, yeah. Something well, like let, that. Anyway. Yes. We'll ask the person who knows. It's big news, yes. Yeah, it's really good. Then we're going to um, speak with Jackie Younger, who you will know if you're a long-time Radio Marinara listener. So we've spoken with Jackie over the years with her involvement in projects like Operation Sponge, looking to transplant all those sponges down in Blagari at the marina um, and then save our spider crabs as well. So she's going to be joining us on a more regular basis this year to give us a wrap-up of community-led clean-up projects. So beach cleans and under jetty cleans and just going and just pulling up all the stuff that either gets washed in or left behind. Um, she's out she's our underwater womble, I've just realised. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's just, see how she takes to that. Um. <laughs> There's probably a few yeah. younger people scratching their heads going, what's a womble? Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, look it up. Um, yeah, so this month she's going to be talking about a nurdle hunt um, led by Sea Shepherd, um, launch of a new marine pest watch project and some really good community cleanups over summer and if, and um, some stuff that she's doing uh, around the traps. Yes, so, she will have to define a nurdle because I just picture like a like a, um, a group of nerds being rounded up by a sheepdog or something. <laughs> it's like a, a little nurdle, but um, that's not what it is. No, it's not what it is. Triple R. Uh, got a minute or two just to do some quick news. Um, after the show last week, I had a phone call with Helen from Mornington, who's also my mum, um, <laughs> alerting me to the fact that there was a, a nice article with lots of nice pictures in last weekend's Sunday Age, really just picking up on the fact that we've had 20 years of marine national parks and sanctuaries in Victoria and talking about some of the research led by um, 
Parks Victoria and Deakin University in collaboration. And Kate, you reminded me just before we went to air about the fact that we had some conversation last year with um, with uh, Parks Victoria about this. We did. We had Michael Samson um, in basically, I think he had a bit of an insight to the data being the um, science manager, science and marine coastal manager at um, Parks Victoria. And so, yeah, he gave us a bit of an insight last year, which must have been over five months ago when I was on. And I'm pretty sure there's a report out now that actually has more of that. So it'd be really good to follow up with Parks and have some more conversations around what our parks have actually been doing and have they been effective. Yeah, the, totally agree. We will line that up for sure. Um, just read one little paragraph here from Deakin uh, with their research, uncovered signs of ailing marine health, um, particularly spurred by climate change. So looking at kelp cover, which is uh, – Really interesting and a nice lead into our upcoming segment. Um, but it says here, while the kelp cover in Port Phillip Heads National Park is in a good to fair condition, there are kelp declines across the state, particularly golden kelp and crayweed. Yes. Mm. So, yes, let's follow that one up. Uh, good news? Do a quick I would good love news story. some good news, yes. And then we'll go to a track. Um, so this one, the headline caught my eye. Thank you, Elizabeth McCarthy. McCarthy, who sent it through from Conservation Volunteers Australia, polystyrene ban cuts marine litter, but for smokers and shoppers. Ah. Yeah. So this has um, just been doing some research uh, looking into plastics in the marine environment. Positive signs that voluntary bans on polystyrene in consumer packaging and food products are working with the amount counted and collected in the nation's urban rivers and catchments having halving, I should say, halving in just 12 months. That's pretty good. Well, that was like the whole straw campaign too. It's, you know basically taking one thing off it can actually make quite a difference that's it. Yeah. you sort of think and maybe this is the way clearly yeah. to 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 do it you just chip away at it one product at a time so um federal government is now considering whether to make these bans mandatory and just get rid of polystyrene altogether let's do it i reckon this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. And on the phone we have Aaron Eager. As far as I know, he's still doing his PhD at University of New South Wales, but I definitely do know that he is the director of the Kelp Forest Alliance and he wants us all to help the kelp. So to find out more, welcome to the show, Aaron. Hi, thank you for having me. I've just finished the PhD as of two weeks ago. We can stamp on the DR to the name. Awesome. I was hoping you were going to say that. I couldn't find anything online in my stalking and I had guessed that you must have been getting close. Congratulations. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a great journey with a lot of great kelp research along the way. Yes. Well, look, before we get into the kelp research, I just wanted to basically get you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to this stage of wanting to, and I'm going to keep throwing the pun out, help the kelp because I love it. That's the hashtag going forward. So absolutely. Um, I got into to science to try and, you know, first learn a little bit more about the world, but ultimately to, to make a difference in the sort of ongoing biodiversity crisis and, and climate change issues that we're facing. And there's been a bit of a circuitous route to get here in terms of the kind of research that we tried to do with our work. Uh, but when it came to the PhD and to the work that led into the Kelp Forest Alliance, it was really trying to look at areas that needed more attention, more research, more funding, and, and places where we could bring together existing information to make the most impact with 
less resources because it's always a bit of a resource strap field. Um, so we've kind of kept that theme going through our work and, and trying to highlight what's already been done, take those lessons learned, and use them to then do the most good, quote-unquote, or, or make the most difference with the information and how it can be used. So was kelp always a part of your life, or did it just sort of come into it through the PhD study? A little bit. I grew up on the, the west coast of British Columbia on Canada, which is a very kelp-dominated marine habitat. And fairly early on, I decided I wanted to do something marine-based, and, and then kelp kind of became the obvious answer because it is just the foundation for marine life in British Columbia and in southern Australia as well. Really, most temperate and sort of sub-Arctic places around the world depend on kelp forests. But it had this issue where, despite its importance and its prevalence, it really isn't that well-known by most of society. Like Most people are much more familiar with a coral reef when they might live 10 kilometers away from the kelp forest. So that sort of kind of need was there, right? It was incredibly important, but also understudied and underappreciated. So I felt that's where we could make um, the most difference really in this fight to protect our ocean. Yeah, and one of the things I like about the Kelp Forest Alliance is the fact that you use that word forest. I think that really helps people that, as you said, aren't familiar with these underwater forests to visualize them because most people have walked through a forest on land but not everyone gets to dive or swim through a forest before we go any further i just wanted to get you to define kelp forest because it's quite a a term that's thrown around for i guess quite a few different species but as far as the kelp forest alliance is concerned what what's kelp so in, in a scientific sense, we, we break things down taxonomically into different groups based on their relatedness. And there's two orders that we consider to be kelp, and that's laminary island kelp, which would be something like golden kelp that we have throughout southern Australia, or fucalin kelp, which would be something like crayweed, which we also have throughout most of southern Australia. And they're quite similar in their form and function. They just have a bit of a different genetic history or evolutionary history, which is why they're classified differently. But we all consider them to be kelp in our sense and welcome them together. Yeah, so if people are out there swimming around and they're wondering whether they're in amongst kelp or not, it's sort of the brown algae pretty much that uh, forms that 3D structure off the seabed is probably an easy way for people to sort of visualise it. Um, how did the Kelp Forest Alliance come about? It's Obviously, there's a lot of work that's gone into sort of forming it, but was it a discussion over a bar or was it as you were doing your PhD, you sort of had that, you know, breakthrough where you're like, oh, something needs to be done and it's going to be me? I think it was a bit of a, a gradual emergent process. So when I went into the PhD, going back to that idea of how do we take existing information and make it useful and make it do the most good I wanted to review all the restoration projects around the world that, that focus on kelp forests. And to do that required a lot of phone calls and emails because oftentimes the people doing the restoration are the people on the ground who are connected to the, the ocean and the marine environment. They aren't necessarily the scientists who are publishing papers and, and things like that. So to get at all that information, I basically called hundreds of people and started talking to them about their, their restoration projects. And as I was doing that, people are really excited to talk because I think they had this sense of a, a big daunting problem that they were trying to tackle alone and by themselves in their local marine backyard. And they didn't really know who to turn to or who to connect to to get information or to get help. And so as this kind of just contact list grew, 
the idea came, let's make this a, a formal organization where we can connect all these people, unite them under one roof, and really push that kelp forest mission at the global level while empowering and giving back to all the local projects. Aaron, it's Bron here. Um, I'm interested, you mentioned that there's several reef, uh, sorry, several kelp restoration projects going on around the world. Can you give us a bit of an idea of where they are? Obviously not all of them, but just, you know, roughly where they are and the sorts of projects, you know, what is the nature of these projects? Absolutely. So the first restoration projects, interestingly enough, started in Japan maybe about 300 years ago in areas they were looking to bolster seaweed production after they defeated it from harvest. And and then one of the local monks there actually instructed the the villagers to create kind of kelp forest reefs in the shallows so they could bolster that production. But then fast forward a fair number of years and we start back in, in California in the late 50s and early 60s where scientists there were noticing declines from El Nino years and warming oceans and sedimentation. And they just started getting to it. Really, like, you might try to, to regrow a forest. They started experimenting with how to transplant kelp, how to seed kelp. A lot of projects these days also work to remove sea urchins, which have increased in abundance over the years. Uh, sea urchins are these kind of spiny marine herbivores that are usually preyed upon or eaten by larger predators like sea otters in North America or lobsters here in Australia. Um, so as they increase in numbers, they can just, now down an entire kelp forest. Uh, so a lot of projects these days are now focused on just removing those. And we have a few here in Australia uh, looking to remove sea urchins in Tasmania, in eastern Victoria, Port Phillip Bay, and oftentimes trying to turn those into a useful resource as well because many places sea urchins are quite a prized food item. Yeah, we're going to be um, focusing a, a segment on our program in weeks coming up about this because it's quite controversial here. People are quite polarised in their thoughts on urchin culling, but I think a lot of it is to do with understanding. And like you say, you remove the urchin's predator for whatever reason, if it's if it's rock lobsters that used to be here or, or whatever else, um, they can get out of control and destroy an entire ecosystem. So we'll, we'll leave that one for now. But, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's, a, it's becoming a problem in lots of different places. Yeah, and look, absolutely, I- and it's... Sorry, Aaron. go ahead. <laughs> All right, sorry. I was We're... just going to say it's an interesting sort of social thing, right? It's not it's not a science issue or it's not just a management issue, but it's really a combination of a lot of different factors, and you have to weigh up those sort of what do we want the ocean to look like, or what what do we want to pass forward to the next generation? And it's not always clear cut, and we can't come up with a scientific answer. Um, but that's what makes it interesting space to work in. Yeah, definitely. And it comes back to what we were talking about before, which was about that concept of playing God in the marine environment. And, you know, one one advocate might say, well, you know, you're playing God by removing these urchins, whereas another one might say, yeah, but you've we've already done that by removing their predators in the first place. So this is this about playing God or is this about restoration and, and uh, taking responsibility for, for something that we've done previously? For sure. And I, I think I, I tend to the second opinion in that, We've had such a, a forceful impact, either consciously or unconsciously, in, in changing what the oceans look like, or what they have looked like for thousands of years. You know, in the last even hundred or half hundred years, we've, we've dramatically changed the makeup of the ocean. And so, I feel we at least have some responsibility now to try and correct that. And not only can the ocean benefit from us correcting that, but the coastal societies and communities that depend on the ocean can also benefit from those sort of corrective actions. And so. It's, it's not just a, for our own good or for the ocean's own good, but it's both things together. Um, 
And it is an interesting distinction between the two. Look, we're really just starting to warm up, so we've, and we haven't even got started on the Kelp Forest Alliance, the goals that it's set, and how you're planning to go about it. So if you can just quickly give us a bit of a rundown on that, because that's pretty much why we got you on, to be honest. And we'll get you back on again, Aaron. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely. No, always happy to, to chat the kelp. So the, the Kelp Forest Challenge came as the main project from the Kelp Forest Alliance. And, and so once we had the community of people doing restoration and we were tracking the efforts and we were getting a better understanding of what was being done, how it was being done, what useful information we could share with our members, we really wanted to highlight this issue at a global level. And since we were already tracking everything that was happening, the idea came to create a challenge of big, ambitious goals that people could get behind and, and work towards and contribute to all around the world to protect and restore kelp for us. And so we've held a, a few, maybe eight or ten consultation workshops over the last few months talking about what we want the challenge to look like, what we want it to achieve, what those target values should actually be. And just last Sunday, actually, we, we launched the Kelp Forest Challenge, which is aiming to protect three million hectares of kelp forest by 2040 and restore one million hectares of kelp forest by that same year. And we're now looking to get pledges or contributions from groups doing restoration or governments that are responsible for protecting kelp forests, but also from anyone or really any organization that might have a role to play in this situation. So we were, we were quite fortunate to launch with 20 pledges, um, which was really amazing, from eight countries. And we had artists who were making songs about kelp and then touring the coastline to promote kelp forests in that context. Uh, we had marketing teams that were working to do little media campaigns and educate people about kelp forests. Uh, we had dive shops that were just loading boats and dive gear when it was needed for restoration efforts. So there's all sorts of ways that people could get involved in this, and we're really trying to, to encourage that sort of wholehearted involvement from all different parts of society. So it's not just the government, it's not just the scientists. But yeah. All these roles that people can play in, in contributing to the Kelp Forest Challenge. Which is a perfect way to wrap up. Um, as we said, we'd love to get you back on and to continue sort of these talks. Um, and we'd love, once you get those songs out, we'd love to play them. I really want to hear these um, kelp songs. The first one that came to my mind was the Beatles' Kelp. I need somebody's kelp. But anyway, that's just <laughs> me. Um, look, can you just quickly give a plug for how people can find out more about the project and get involved? Yeah, you can go on the kelpforestalliance.com and there you can see all the different restoration projects. You can see about different ways to make a pledge. Uh, you can support the campaign. And you can just learn more about Kelp Forest and tell your friends, get the word out. It's all about creating a mission and creating excitement behind Kelp Forest. So really, again, anyone, anywhere who wants to chat, please reach out and we'd be happy to follow up. That's perfect. Thank you, Aaron. I'm excited and I'm ready to get going with it. Look, we will get you back on and we'll chat some more. Thanks for giving us some of your Sunday morning. Brilliant. My pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. We're done. That was... Aaron Eager. So many more questions. I know. I've got pages and pages of them. <laughs> you and I are looking at each other, Kate, going, yes. there's at least four more interviews yes. in here. So, yes, we'll definitely get Aaron back on. Yes, restoration. Yeah. Good topic. Ah, ah. Ah, without further ado, time for this week's dive report with Cara Hull. Good morning, Cara. How are you? Ah, <laughs> oh, there we go. We got you. Yeah, good. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good morning. Very, very well, thank you. Um, how's the diving? Because we've had a bit of turn in weather in the last 24 hours. What's what's it been like over the last few days? And what's it likely to be like today? 
It's been a brilliant week, and we're just sitting at Frankston Pier now, which is probably the worst place to be sitting in Westerlies, which is coming fast, <laughs> but it's still diveable. So, I mean, it's a great day to get out there. There's patchy sun all around the bay and some dark clouds. <laughs> it's, um, it's looking good. That's good. If you've got Westerlies coming in and it's good at Frankston, I'm guessing that means it's going to be pretty similar all the way down the Mornington Peninsula? Definitely, and it's setting south this afternoon, so... Ride, Lake Gary, all of them are pretty good, I'd say. What's the, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot, what's the water temperature doing? Um, it's getting a little bit cold. I think Melbourne's trying to tell us to enjoy the rest of summer. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we did the tide times, I think, at the start of the show, didn't we, Kate? We did. I think it's like 10 past 11 is low tide at the heads. Um, and I'd be sending people over to Flinders today with that westerly. Go and see some yeah. windy sea dragons, take some photos, upload them to Sea Dragon Search. Just a quick plug for a project in there nice. as well. Yes. <laughs> and we've got, we're in the middle of the moon cycle, so we've got those nice long low tides. You know, so it's great to get out there and snorkel as well. Yeah. Hey, I saw a couple of reports during the week about spider crabs potentially making an early appearance. Have you seen that too? Um, I heard the reports, but we went looking and couldn't find any. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, sta- we'll stay tuned for that one because they're most likely to um, to appear at some point in the next few months. Um, Myra sent us a message this morning and said um, she'd been out diving yesterday at Phillip Island um, up on the George Commode wreck and also Seal Rocks and said it was yeah. a brilliant day in the water. Yeah, so just good diving all around at the moment. Yeah, it's beautiful. It was really lovely. And I got out to Bird Rock and just talking about the kelp. It was amazing at Bird Rock this week just to see the kelp regeneration there. Uh-huh. Uh, after, yeah. Where's so. Bird Where's Bird Rock? Just off Mount Martha. Oh, right. Okay. Yep. little snorkel spot, yeah. And yeah, you had to do the urchin culling there and all the golden kelps have come back and there's no invasives. It's amazing. Oh, really, really great. But, yeah. That's really good news. Are you diving under Franks and Peter Day? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and what would what will you likely see under there? I'm guessing we've got a few people who might have gone down to Frankston and maybe gone into the water and had a bit of a swim, but not thought about maybe diving under the pier. I know lots of people don't think about Frankston, but I heart Frankston, and there's all the local residents that I love. There's the little Blennies, you know. There's so many people with attitude, or little <laughs> the seahorses. Yeah. Right. You just got to get your macro on it. It's like muck diving. People pay thousands to go to Lembe when you can just do it at Frankston. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I heart Frankston too. I've just never dived under the pier there. So I'm going to make that a date with you, Cara. Definitely. Uh, before this year's out, I've got a still bit of physical recovery to do after my surgery um, earlier. Anyway, but um, yeah, going to come diving with you at Frankston. There you Thank go. I've made yeah, a public awesome commitment stuff. on radio, so I have to do it now. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thank you. That's been great. Have a great thank week. Thank you. Have a great day. And yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Catch you soon. Okay. <laughs> See ya. Cara Hull there, our week's dive report. The other thing you find at Frankston's shopping trolleys. <laughs> at, and under the PR? Yeah. Ah, okay. They make really good homes for pipefish. I'm sure they do. And seahorses, yeah. We're not encouraging anyone to go no, and put shopping trolleys off the PR, no, though. But no. if they accidentally end up there, yes. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Triple R. A couple of text messages that have come through. One from Una sending us a photo of uh, a, a massive spider crab spotted last week on her swim. Uh, I'm not going to say where they are, Una, just because we, we're conscious of sometimes this can provoke a whole lot of crabbing activity, but we'll just say that it was somewhere down the southern end of the Mornington Peninsula. So... Yeah, and it's great that swimmers are starting to take their cameras with them and sort of take these photos of unusual stuff because I've noticed a lot of ocean swimmers are starting to trade in their goggles for a mask and snorkel. Yeah. 
It's great. They're it's starting really... to pay a bit more attention. It yeah. is. And one from uh, Dan Warner as well saying, thanks for playing the track. <laughs> on you, Dan. I'm so excited. I've already, I bought my tickets weeks ago. I'm so excited to go to this. Uh, at Memo Music Hall, we'll put some links to that on our Facebook page. All right. Now, you may recall our reporting over the last few years about efforts to restore ancient but now missing shellfish reefs in Port Phillip Bay. Great work led by the Nature Conservancy to replace shellfish reefs. That word, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> shellfish reefs. Gradually taken from the bay since European arrival and has led to an overall 95% loss. Wow. So this project had been so successful, the Nature Conservancy now has its sights set on restoring shellfish reefs in the Gippsland Lakes. So the project's looking very promising and to tell us all about it, it's a big marinara. Welcome to Scott Breshkin. Good morning. Good morning, team. Thanks for having me. Fantastic to have you here. Now, you guys know each other. Yeah, we went out for dinner on Thursday night, I believe, <laughs> to have at the Lake Tyres pub while everyone was out prawning. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Now, um, I thought maybe to start with for listeners who haven't known about the work in Port Phillip Bay to restore shellfish reefs, can you summarise a bit about what that project was all about? Yeah, so since 2017, um, the Nature Conservancy and partners have been uh, on a mission to restore shellfish reefs, which were once an abundant habitat in, in Port Phillip Bay, but also right around Australia, kind of from uh, Noosa down the eastern coast of Australia, right across the southern part of Australia, around Tasmania, um, and all the way around to Perth. So these were once abundant um, and very important ecosystem that since European settlement have largely um, been lost. So since 2017, we've kind of been on a mission to bring these ecosystems back from the brink of extinction. Um, and up in in Port Phillip Bay, we're up to about um, over 10 hectares, around 12 hectares of shellfish reef um, restoration has been completed now in the bay, um, which is an incredible effort. How many MCGs has that got? <laughs> yeah. Do you know? I think it's about three. Yeah, I think I did have a quick look before when you were yes. talking. I was like, oh, I better prepare some MCG facts. But um, I think it's around four MCGs. Wow. wow. Yeah. That's yeah. impressive. Now, yeah. when we say restoration, these are recycled scallop shells that largely, is it mostly scallop shells? So we're using a combination of methods, um, but we follow principles of ecological restoration where we're really trying to reconstruct an ecosystem that once existed and to, to get it towards what a reference ecosystem um, would be like. Um, so in, in the bay, we're using two, two, two techniques of kind of the substrate that we need to put down. Um, primarily, it's locally sourced limestone rock. Um, and so limestone kind of acts as um, the base for the shellfish reefs and it kind of mimics what a natural reef would be like. So it sends the right cues to our shellfish that this is a good place to kind Kind of settle and make their homes. So we use locally sourced limestone or alternatively we can use also um, recycled scallop shells. So we have a program called Shuck Don't Chuck where we collect um, uh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> we collect shells from restaurants and markets um, around Melbourne um, and divert those from going to landfill. We can then um, cure those to kind of get rid of any nasties that might be associated with them and then re reuse them for either building reefs, so as a substrate, or we also use them as, um, as uh, a substrate to grow baby oysters on which we can then placed onto reefs that have been kind of constructed out of that limestone material. And the oysters that you're using are local to the area that they're being transplanted to? That's right, yeah. Yep. So we're, we're restoring native flat, native flat oysters, Austrian Gazi, um, which people may not be overly familiar with, um, but they were the once abundant oyster here in our waters. Um, we collect those from our local area and then we, we use their kind of babies, if you like, to, to make more oysters to put back into that same area. So 
Yeah. I wanted to ask about why it's important to restore these habitats. It's not about creating a new industry, is it? No. So we're doing, um, I guess, environmental ecological restoration, I guess, to bring back the benefits that these incredible ecosystems provide. And so that's things like um, really good for local um, fish stocks, great um, for increasing biodiversity, and they have an incredible capacity to filter water. So really good at improving local water quality um, and removing nutrients and things like that that might be in excess in, in these environments. One of the things I love about the project is that as you mentioned, so they're good for fish stocks, but they're also good from an environmental point of view. And you've sort of been able to bridge the gap between, may say, conservation groups and then fishing clubs and sort of get them all in the same room and focus on what they have in common and the outcomes that they want in common rather than you know, butting heads over things that they differ from. How have you seen that relationship evolve with these groups? Is it getting stronger? Are people starting to realise that, you know, they don't necessarily need to be on opposite sides? They can actually work together to achieve something amazing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been really lucky with these projects. We've had great community support from, as you say, a really diverse range of stakeholders that maybe wouldn't always come together in these sorts of projects. But, yeah, local fishers are really big supporters, local environmental groups, local community groups. Um, All of those are super supportive of these projects, particularly so in the Gippsland Lake. That's a really popular um, fishing destination. But the local fishers there have been really supportive of these projects, I guess because there are those potential uh, benefits in terms of um, boosting local fish stocks. Um, but they're also really keen to see the environmental kind of benefits as well. Um, people who live in these kind of coastal environments are all super passionate about, um, you know, preserving what they have and improving what they have. And so, yeah, we've been able to get all those kind of stakeholders on board, which has been really important to the success. So moving to the Gippsland Lakes, you've got 13 sites identified for restoration. So part of our Reef Builder Initiative, which is a partnership with the Australian Government, we're currently undertaking shellfish reef restoration at 13 sites around Australia. Around so Australia, that, right. That sort of starts at Noosa, goes all the way down the eastern coast across to um, to Perth and it effectively represents the historic range of where these shellfish reefs would have been found. In the Gippsland Lakes we have one site at the moment um, which is about three hectares in size so I think um, I think it's about one and a half MCGs for UK so just to put that into, into perspective. Um, so we've got one site there at the moment, um, three hectares where we've constructed um, 17 reef patches. So within that area we, we construct these reef patches with this local limestone um, and those patches are sort of 30 by 10 metres to 15 by 10 metres in size. So a bunch of patches within a larger area and that's what kind of forms our restoration area. 30 by 10 metres, I'm thinking like a standard swimming pool. <laughs> Almost. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. 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 Um, so how did you select them? What makes a suitable site? Yeah, so to, to, to select our sites, we undertake a process called restoration suitability modelling. So that's where we need to consider all the kind of environmental factors, like what are the kind of, what's the water quality, what's the depth, what are those conditions that our oysters and, and mussels in this case need to survive. And once we've done that, we can kind of create some maps and then we go out to our stakeholders um, and, and start consulting on these locations. So then we need to get input from people like ports, from fishers, from all sorts of community groups to kind of inform where these where these um, uh, 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 where these sites could be best located. Um, so what you often find, I mean, the Gippsland Lakes is a huge area. Um, you start with a lot of areas that are really suitable, and then by the time you kind of have to factor in all of these sort of opinions and um, you know existing infrastructure, all that sort of stuff, you end up with some fairly uh, you know much more refined areas. So at the moment, we've got um, the three hectares around Nyrimalang, with which for people who know the lakes is sort of halfway between um, Lakes Entrance and Meetung, um, and we also have another uh, two hectare site where we have permits to build, but we're looking to get some additional funding to do that. So yeah. And so, what's on the books for the rest of the year? Because we're clearly going to get you back to yeah. get a report <laughs> on how this is all going. Yeah, so recently, so just in the last couple of weeks, um, we've done what we call seeding. So that's when we add our baby oysters to those reefs. So we've just put down about two and a half million baby oysters onto those reefs, um, which 
Uh, they've, they've been seeded on scallop shells. So over the next couple of years, those babies will grow and then they'll start to reproduce and then their babies will recruit onto that limestone surface. Um, so that's kind of um, been the last big activity that we've done. It's really now in a bit more of a monitoring phase um, and lots of citizen science and community sort of stuff happening as well in, in support of the project. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So people can get involved? Yeah, so we had, what we've had people involved in so far is helping us prepare the shell. Um, so we need to clean all that shell and prepare it for the hatchery to grow the babies on. Um, we've also had local citizen scientists doing an oyster gardening program in the lake. So they've actually been looking after some of our baby oysters in baskets that have been tied up around jetties around the lakes. Um, and just this week, we, we, we took those um, volunteers out on a boat trip to put their baby oysters onto the reefs. Oh, so that was super exciting. Um, and we've also had local fishers involved in um, doing some underwater video monitoring for us as well. So some, some more of that coming up. Um, but, yeah, been really great to do that. And we also had uh, 50 primary school kids come down um, to the lakes with us on Wednesday um, and that was a program run by the East Gippsland Catchment Management Authority who were supporting us with the project. Uh, and we ran a sort of education day with a bunch of other stuff, um, which was super exciting to have young frothing kids, you know. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Um, so if, if you're listening and you want to take part in it, um, easiest thing to do is just to go to the website. We've already put a link to that on our Facebook page. So a great photo of you, Scott, with a a massive big bag of of um, of what what's in the bag? Yeah. <laughs> so that, I'm assuming it's scallop shells it and is. seated oysters. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, check that. So that was one of. Uh, <laughs> it's not a body bag. No, it? no. <laughs> Uh, so that, that was one of uh, about 400 of those bags which contained the recycled scallop shells yeah. with our baby oysters on it. So that yeah. bag that I'm holding has about 7,000 babies in it. So we put down 400 of those onto the reefs. Yeah. yeah, cool. So if you click on that link, that will take you through to a little bit of text and then another link through to the uh, the Nature Conservancy's page. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Will you come back? Absolutely. Please really want to find out more about how this goes. The Gippsland Lakes Shellfish Reef Restoration Project. We've been speaking with Scott Breshkin from the Nature Conservancy. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Yeah, Triple R is where you are, and it's a great big marinara. Welcome to Jackie Younger. Good morning, Jackie. Morning, Brian. Morning, Kay. Long time no speak. Very long time no speak. I know. I where, miss you guys. <laughs> where are you hanging out, Jack? Oh, you know, I'm doing a lot of snorkelling these days, having a bit of leisure time, you know, <laughs> on the peninsula, of course. <laughs> and we're wanting to catch up with you on a monthly or so basis to talk about, because sure. each time we've talked to you about all these different things, we've sort of had a little comment in there about some great community cleanup work. And I thought, well, why don't we just kind of make this, let's, let's formalise this, Jackie. We'll kind of have a, a monthly catch up about what's going on. So um, where do you want to start? Oh, there's so many things. So I know we've only got a short amount of time. So, look, over the summer, you've got your dive clubs, dive line, and ocean divers who do regular cleanups. They also do Und area and Northern Pacific Sea Star pest removals as well. Um, we had a really big cleanup with Sea Shepherd Marine Debris in January where we got about 86 kilos from the foreshore at Rye. Um, so there's, and there's a lot of people out there doing their individual cleanups over the, over the summer, which has been so good to see. It's so fantastic. So just on that, the 86 kilos from the foreshore yeah. at Rye. Sure. 
is there like sifting through all this stuff? Is it mostly stuff that's washed in? Is it stuff people are leaving oh, behind? Bit of a mix. It's a bit, yeah, it's a bit of a combination at Rye. We you know you can bring in from the wind coming down from the street. It's such a busy area. Um, one thing we're finding less of though, which is great, is straws and balloons, which is something close to my heart. So we are finding that these, you know, this move to reduction in, in single use plastics is having an effect. Um, but we are still finding a lot of soft plastics um, along that foreshore. Um, Rye's a really busy area over summer. So, you know, we've got that big parkland on the foreshore there where there's just there's just so many different channels for that rubbish to come into the area. Yeah, one of the things I love about these cleanups is that you get to interact with the public. So those that don't get in the water get to see what's coming out. Have you had some good conversations around that with people? Oh, look, absolutely, and that's that's kind of hit home for me. It's I've you know a life of scuba diving and snorkeling. I'm very cautious of you know to include people that can't that, that can't or don't want to get into the water. So a lot of people that come along. This is what's so great about these events. You meet so many people that you've seen them at an event you know a month before, and they're like, oh this is so great, I didn't know we could do this. And then they start and then they become regular cleanup um, attendees. So really good conversations around that and around the source of this litter is, is a really interesting one. Now, no, Jackie, you wanted to talk about the launch of a new marine pest watch project. What's that one all about? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, so exciting. Um, the Eco Centre has had a pest watch community rapid response teams for the Northern Pacific Sea Star, which was established last year, which is almost 80 members. And now they've um, introduced, we had our first session this week on the Asian shore crab. So that's a new one that we're going to start looking at recording locations and then eventually training. Um, they're going to be training people in removal of them. Um, it's something I didn't, I didn't actually, I know about the Europe European green crab, but I really wasn't aware of the Asian shore crab, which apparently was only discovered in eastern Port Port Phillip Bay in 2020. So it's a a pretty new discovery. And um, apparently the females can have up to 50,000 eggs. So this is another species that we need to be really wary of. It's a great citizen science project. Anyone can join it. They just have to email fam at ecocentre.com so they can join up and learn about how they can help. So it's just a really great. It's for me in so much, so many years of invasive, so it was my original uni research was in invasive species. So I've kind of come full circle and seeing the public be more involved. It's just wonderful. We've got about one minute left and I know you want to get in a particular plug for some work that you're sure. doing with uh, do. Woman Jika. Yeah. Uh, what a, uh, yeah, uh, Woman Jika on the 25th of March, so brilliant festival at Emu Plains, and I've got about 20 seconds to just let you guys know that Sea Shepherd Marine Debris has their annual nurdle hunt on March the 5th at Aspendale Beach, so that's at 10 o'clock. You can head to the Facebook to register to to um, find out more information about that one. That's a really big one too. Fantastic, and we'll put some links to that on our Facebook page, Jackie, so people Fantastic. can go in. We'll just click on that amazing photo of you doing clean up at Flinders um, <laughs> and we'll put That's some links in there. That's another conversation next time. <laughs> yeah, we'll, uh, we'll organise that in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks, Jackie. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Bron. Okay. See, See ya. Bye for now. Bye. Brings us to the end of Marinara for today. Thanks so much to Jackie Younger, to Scott Breshkin from The Nature Conservancy, Cara Hull for our dive report, Aaron Eager from University of New South Wales. It's been a big show, Cade. Has been and I don't think I fell off my bike. And we, <laughs> we had a, a message from Jay saying, how many baby oysters can fit in the MCG? <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> we'll give that next one time. to Scott can take that one away for some homework. Stay tuned for radiotherapy next week. Ants will be in along with Farm and uh, they'll be having a chat with Heidi Tate from Tangaroa Blue. So already next week's show shaping up to be a big one. Have a great Sunday. Catch you next week for more Marinara. Bye for now. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.